Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to? A look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. About 99% of Missouri businesses are considered small businesses. In fact, there is a federal agency specifically called the Small Business Administration. But what is a small business? Fair, that's kind of a relative thing, I think. The SBA says a small business is an independently owned and operated company that is limited in size and in revenue depending on the industry. Now, for example, I owned a small business. I had a partner and we had one employee. A bakery that employs 10 people is a small business. Uh, So is a manufacturing company that employs up to 500 people. Even up to 500. Yeah, it it all fits within whatever the competition is or whatever the market is. The scope of that industry. Well, Missouri has more than half a million small businesses employing about 1.1 million people. And studies show small business owners are generally happy. Nine out of 10 on a 10-point scale is what they're reporting. Yeah, studies also show the opportunity to own and run your own business remains a core part of the American dream. But if you're one of those dreamers, are you ready to really take the plunge? We're going to explore that issue today, the legal foundations needed for starting and running a small business. To help us understand the opportunities and the pitfalls of small business is Adrian Haynes. She's an attorney and small businesswoman who specializes in helping entrepreneurs develop sustainable business practices. She works with clients throughout the state as managing partner of Seed Law in Kansas City, and also the owner of C Collective, a consultancy. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. Thanks so much for having me. Well, before we dive in to starting your own business, tell us about Seed Law. Does that stand for something? Yes, Farah. Seed Law stands for Strategic Enterprise and Economic Development Law. And we specialize in helping entrepreneurs take their idea from the idea stage into reality. And then we really specialize in partnering with them as they grow their business as well, because the legal challenges and opportunities that you face at the beginning may change as your business grows. And as you were mentioning, as you add more people to your team. Excellent. I know that there is so much that goes into a small business. I happen to be married to a small business owner. Both of my parents were small business owners. So I probably have seen a bit more behind the curtain than the average citizen. But so many people I know have talents that they then want to turn into a profession or a business that they call their own. And we're excited you're going to help basically pull back that curtain today and help walk through the things that you need to consider when planning to do that. First up, can you talk to us about the types of organizations that exist, what they are? And really, is that the first thing that you need to be thinking of when you want to start a business? Great question. The definition of an entrepreneur is one who organizes, manages, and assumes the risk of a business or enterprise. So considering your choice of entity is a is an important question to consider how your business or enterprise will actually be set up. The four most common types of entities that exist here in Missouri, there's two ways really to do business. You can be in business by doing, which really is sole proprietorships, general partnerships, or you can be in business by filing, which is where you file with the Secretary of State, you file your articles, and you let the Secretary of State know, hey, I'm doing business in this state. Those entities include a limited liability company, a corporation, and also a nonprofit corporation. Are there pros and cons to each of these? Sure. There's different reasons why people would select their choice of entity. For a sole proprietorship, that's a business where one person owns all the assets, owes all the liabilities, and operates the business in his or her professional, or excuse me, their personal capacity. 
The great thing about a sole proprietorship is it's really easy to start. Usually the example that we share is, you know, if you want to sell iced tea, you make some extra iced tea and you want to share it to the neighbors and you want to sell it for a dollar a cup, um, then you just go knock on doors. You're doing business by just doing. Um, you're not registering with the secretary of state to say, hey, I want to sell iced tea. Um, so sole proprietorships are easy to create. However, you're also, the creator is also, bears all the responsibility and the liabilities. So there's no limited liability protection. So when you say mm-hmm. liability, if someone maybe got an upset stomach from your tea, then you're, you're assuming that risk as the individual. Absolutely. Okay. So the reason why we select a choice of entity is because it's an organization that would have a legal identity that's separate from those of its owners or its members. So creating that entity allows for the limited liability shield that we have in our statutes to, to be activated. So it does separate the activities of the business from the activities of you as an individual. And a sole proprietorship, you're right, Vera, if you just go sell your tea and someone gets sick, it'll be up to you, the creator and the owner of that business, to manage the liability there or the obligations that could arise. The second type of business by doing is a general partnership. Here in the state of Missouri, a partnership is an association of two or more folks that are carrying on as co-owners of a business for profit. The reason why we talk about partnerships for our clients is because you can be in a partnership almost on accident. So Farah, if you and I decided to go sell the tea, we're not registering with the Secretary of State, but you and I are two people that are carrying on a business for a, a hopeful profit. And so partnerships are, they can also be filed. So they also count under business, you know, business by filing if you decide to create a limited partnership, which is available through our state statutes as well. Did that make sense, Farah? It did. Yeah. And okay. it's, it's interesting because I don't think I realized that just by two people working towards, you know, the same goal for profit that you would be partners without a contract. I, I had no idea that that could be a possibility. So. Right. And you see people doing this, you know, in anticipation of a business, they may link with a friend or two or a colleague to begin the business. Um, And it's really just important no matter what for all of our clients, whether you're thinking about starting a business or you've actually filed it to always paper your, your relationships. So we spend a lot of our time helping our clients document the relationships between their team members, their vendors, their partners, et cetera. But at what point is it important to actually have a contract among the partners of any business? Great question. For business by filing, which includes entities such as a limited liability company, a corporation, or a nonprofit corporation, in our state statutes, there are required governing documents that that talk about how those businesses are governed. They don't have to be submitted back to the Secretary of State, but they are required by our state statutes to have on hand. For a limited liability company, After you file your articles of organization with the Secretary of State, you should create an operating agreement. And that operating agreement is the governing document for an LLC. And it talks about how decisions are made in a business, whether it's owned by one person or multiple. It talks about what to do in the case of death or disability of an owner, voluntary or involuntary transfers, how the business will manage the process to bring more people in or remove owners. That's early on in the process. Right after filing, I recommend our clients to create an operating agreement. We had an episode earlier this year where we talked about marriage and prenups. And the lawyer, (laughs) one of the lawyers said that she thought every marriage should have a prenup if possible, because 
it's like an agreement. It's like going into business with someone <laughs> for for life. So it's it's very interesting to hear what all that operating document does. It not only talks about how you're going to run the business, but you mentioned removal or, you know, if, if basically if things go south, it lays out how to handle that too. Is that correct? Absolutely. And we like to help our clients. When we help them file, we also create an operating agreement for them. Because once you have those you know, big kind of triggering events written down and, and, and understanding about how you'll manage them, it makes it easier to focus on the business side. Yeah. And yes, we require people to do more research in starting a business with one another than we often require <laughs> for people to get married. You often see people who come in and say, I have this great idea for a business. I'm going to open it up, but they don't have any money with them. They don't have any money behind them. They might have enough to open the business. What do you advise them in terms of, of financial capabilities or capacities before they even think about opening a business? That's a great question, Bob. To create a business, of course, we're encouraging the clients that we talk to to consider their legal fees, whether they decide to do it through a, you know an online efficient process or if they want to sit down with an attorney who can work with them really through the duration of their business. So I would say that legal costs are required for business owners to consider early on, but not everyone is eligible for external financing. I try to talk to our clients about you know, we're not going to walk you through creating a solid financial model in your business, but we are encouraging people to think about it and to have those things have a plan for that. A, a, really a business plan, I think, is what covers how the money should move through a business. You have to have some capital to get something started. Is there any kind of a minimum that you recommend people have to make sure the business lasts more than a few weeks? <laughs> I think that self-financing your business is really the best way in the beginning or having your clients and the sales that you make dictate how fast your business grows. Mm -hmm. If you plan to mow lawns and you know that it costs $50 in gas, I would encourage our clients, hey, do you know how many lawns you're going to have to mow this week in order to be able to cover your overhead? Those are not legal questions, but they are important to, as you mentioned, figure out how long your business can actually be in operation. Where does a small business administration loan fit into all of this? There are a few different small business loans. And, you know, for any any external financer looking to invest in a small business, they're going to ask for, if you don't have three years of business financials, they're going to ask for your personal financials. And so I don't actually know how long you have to be in business in order to receive an SBA loan. But some funders require you to be in business for at least a year before they would consider making a loan to you because they want to know that you have a solid financial model as well. And no matter who you're talking to, you're going to have to to be able to back up how you'll be able to pay the money back. I wanted to ask you earlier, you talked about different things that you need to consider, such as legal fees or other costs for your overhead and that. When it comes to working with a lawyer to set up your business, what are the benefits of someone working with a lawyer like you, who's based here in the state, practices the law, is licensed in the state, versus maybe just going for that online form that might be more generic? We work with entrepreneurs. So we try to be honest about the fact that early on, folks might not have the cost to pay for a lawyer. But what I recommend for folks, if they decide to find documents online or go another route where it's more a more automated service, I encourage them to just be mindful that the documents that they're downloading actually reflect the laws of our state. The World Wide Web includes documents that might speak to statutes of other states, may not require certain things that our state statutes require. And the reason why you write an operating agreement is so that you have your preference versus the state default. 
because if you don't have an operating agreement and you're, you go out of business or something happens to the owner, like death or disability, then the courts have to decide how to handle the business per our statutes. So when you're thinking about, should I invest in a lawyer early on or not? I think that that's a consideration. Do the documents I'm looking for actually reflect the state statutes that I'm in and that I'm operating in? It's also important to recognize, you know, if the documents actually reflect the way that you're going to do business. When you work with a lawyer, we customize documents for you. We are mindful of the laws and we're making sure that all the statutory requirements are in your operating agreement. But we're also trying to make sure that the document really reflects the way that someone does business. And so often what I see is, With some of those generic documents, first, people don't know what they say. (laughs) Uh, They don't know if they actually reflect the way they want their business to run. And that's really important when you're thinking about partnership agreements or, you know, just documents that talk about who's making decisions or investments in the business. You want to make sure it actually reflects your deal. So I would say that working with a lawyer is helpful because it, it allows that customization. And we're intending, even early on, to work with clients for the long haul. So we want to work with clients for, you know, the size they are when they start. We are curious about where they want their business to grow. And then we're able to use our experience and our knowledge of the law to really make sure that we're setting up the business early on in a way that will support, you know, the future intended growth. Is there any kind of a checklist that you can follow or that you can give one of your clients that says, these are the things you need to think about and work out before you even sit down and talk to us very much? Yes. And we do this a lot when we're creating a business with multiple partners. We have what we call formation guides that are a series of questions that reflect our state statutes, both opportunities and challenges that we've seen other clients go through that we feel is important to consider at the beginning. And, you know, an operating agreement, when you go through that process for an LLC, it really does require you to think through how do we want to make decisions when things are good and how do we want to make decisions when things might be a little bit difficult. So I think going through the operating agreement really is a checklist for people to consider at least the management and operational side of the business. So now that we've talked through the business organization and the person's thinking, all right, I think I know what business organization I want and I know how to file with the Secretary of State's office. I know all these steps to take to have a operating agreement if I have my partner and hopefully work with a lawyer to help me through all of this. What are the next steps? Do they need to get a federal tax ID number or do you have to have a business license for every type of business in Missouri or does that vary? What are some other next steps that you have to do maybe even before you can start selling or serving customers in in a particular city? Sure. So our formation packages usually include the filing with the Secretary of State. And in order to get a bank account for your business that's specifically associated with your company, you do need an EIN, which is an employer identification number. We really like to call it a social security number for your business, which when we're creating a separate entity and it has a separate legal identity, that social security number for the business is your EIN. And that allows business owners to create a bank account that has the business's title on it versus the name of the owner. And so we help file with the Secretary of State, we get that EIN, and we draft that operating agreement. Those are really the three most basic things we do when we're creating, in that case, a limited liability company. Because for a corporation, the governing documentation is just a little different. They're called bylaws. And bylaws govern the way that a board is run because corporations aren't owned by one person. They're governed by a board of directors. So bylaws are the governing documentation of a corporation. 
And then after, I think you do your filing, you get your EIN number, you create your governing documentation, whatever your form of entity may be. It is important to consider tax ramifications. And I also encourage people to create a contract for that first kind of client or relationship that they're planning to get. Because even if you're just mowing lawns, when someone says yes, you want to be able to have some sort of paperwork that says, okay, you know, there was an offer, (laughs) there's acceptance, and here's the consideration, which really says we're in a a contractual relationship. So that's what I would encourage as it relates to here are kind of the first few things we need to do to create the business. Sooner or later, you're going to have to give your business a name. How (laughs) free are you to stick whatever name you want to stick on it? Yeah, that's a great question. So no matter what business name you create, you do have to indicate the choice of entity that you've made. For instance, Seed Law, we are a limited liability company. So on our contracts, it's Seed Law LLC. We don't have to write that on everything, but I think that on your governing documents and on your actual, you know, your legal paperwork, you have to indicate your choice of entity. And there's also something called a fictitious name. So if you decide to do business under a name that's different than your filed name, you have to create and file a fictitious name. And what that just says is it's not a, an official business, but we're doing business outside of our given name. And so if you need to have a fictitious name, but you don't have one, it's actually a misdemeanor. It's a class D misdemeanor in the state if you don't file your fictitious name and you should. Is that most common if maybe you decide to rebrand or expand your business and you want to add something to the title of your business to reflect that? Sure. Some examples that we see, an example that I share, let's say John Doe and Jane Smith are the primary shareholders of Doe and Smith Ventures, but they operate a coffee shop called John and Jane's Coffee Shop. The Doe and Smith Ventures company must register the fictitious name under which it's doing business. So the coffee shop, they're operating under a name that's different than their true or their corporate name. Is there a danger in naming your business after the partner, Vera and Bob's Fitness Emporium and Tea Shop? That's a great combo of things. We're (laughs) going to exercise and then have tea. It almost sounds English, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. But but what happens then if one of us leaves? Does the one who leaves have any claim on taking the name with them? So I'm going to give the classic lawyer answer, which is it depends. (laughs) (laughs) We hear that often. (laughs) Right. I'm sure you do. So Oh, that's a tricky one, Bob. What I would say for that is if the business is registered, if the name of the business is a registered trademark, Mm -hmm. then it would likely have to stay with the company. There's some times where I see companies that are named after an owner (laughs) and, you know, there's been a change. This happens in law firms often. You can change the name of your business. There's a filing through the Secretary of State that you can change the name. And so I would encourage people, you know, if it's named after (laughs) for your fitness emporium and tea shop. If you all decided to do business separately, I would just recommend, a, well, the operating agreement would talk about how to handle <laughs> the business in the event of a dissolution. And yeah, we would just likely advise our clients to change the name and handle that filing. Are, are there any limits on how close you can name your business to the existing name of another business? Yes. And actually, the Secretary of State's website is really good about even when you're going through the process of creating a business, if it's too close to another business that's been filed in the, in the state, it will flag that and won't allow you to create a business that's too close. Because what we're trying to do really on a policy level is to not create any sense of confusion between which business am I actually patronizing? And so the Secretary of State 
does a great job kind of flagging those names that are too similar. And we also encourage our clients to do a real search when they're considering the name of their business because your intellectual property considerations may hinge on those similarities later. Can you give us an idea of what intellectual property actually entails? We hear that a lot today, even on TV shows or people bickering or arguing over intellectual property rights, but it's kind of an amoeba. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. Sure. So intellectual property is a property right in any product of the human intellect that the law protects from unauthorized use by others. So that also is a lot of legalese. <laughs> this sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. Business corporations, as we are hearing, coming many sizes and flavors. INC, LLC, etc. Did you ever think how corporations came into being? As a lawyer, I like to think of the invention of the corporation as one of my profession's crowning achievements. Think about it. The dream of every budding capitalist is to own his or her own business. To start a business, you have to have capital, money. If the business is just you as a sole proprietor or you and a partner, a partnership, you and your partner will be personally responsible for the debts of the business. But a corporation, on the other hand, is a separate being, separate from its creators and investors. You can buy shares of a modern corporation without being responsible for the debts of the business if it fails. All you stand to lose is your investment in buying the shares of the business. This allows a business to raise capital, money, to conduct its business, from people who have money to invest. These investors wanted the business to make money and to pay them dividends on their investments. They don't want to be responsible for anything more than risking the loss of their initial investment. The corporation also protects its own owners from being responsible for the corporation's bad acts or fault. If the driver of a truck owned by the XYZ Corporation is careless, and the truck runs over an innocent pedestrian, for example, the XYZ Corporation is responsible. But you as an owner of stock in the XYZ Corporation are not liable. The value of your stock may go down because of this kind of fault or negligence, but if the XYZ Corporation has no insurance or assets to cover the loss, the owners of its stock are not responsible. Lawyers invented an image the corporation has a veil that shields its owners. And of course, the law finds ways, few and far between, exactly, for what courts call piercing the corporate veil. When there is evidence that a corporation's owners have abused their privilege as shareholders and should be held responsible, but a veil piercing is so rare that few of us ever have to think about it. When lawyers invented corporations a few centuries ago, they went to legislatures to create them. With the rise of the modern corporation, this function was turned over to government bureaus. Laws were enacted to make it easy to establish a corporation of many sorts. The simplest is currently called the Limited Liability Company, LLC. In Missouri, for instance, you do not have to go to the legislature or to a court to create a corporation. 
you go to the Secretary of State of Missouri, go to the website, fill out the forms, pay a fee, and within minutes you can become the proud owner of a business. Then, of course, comes the hard part. You have to raise some money, you have to have a business plan, you have to hire some help, if any. Uh, so when it comes to starting a business corporation at the very basic level, the government really is here to help. Take it. Legalese. The three primary intellectual property vehicles are copyrights, which are really for written works of authorship. So, you know, scripts, books, software codes, etc. Trademarks are the second most common, which are for words, phrases, symbols, logos, designs, or any combination of those. And patents are for proprietary inventions. Let's say, Farah, you create a new type of bike. You could get a patent for the invention itself. You could get a trademark for the brand name of the product and your logo. Maybe a, a slogan if you have one, too. Uh, and you can get a copyright for the TV commercial that you use to market the business. So when small businesses are considering intellectual property, we let them know that it's often, you know, an intellectual property suite that you're developing over time, which really gives a legal presumption of your ownership of the mark and your exclusive right to use the mark nationwide. And the reason why we file intellectual property is just that, to prevent and minimize the confusion between, you know, for consumers about what kind of business they're working with. A lot of businesses start with people investing their own assets in the business. Are there tax advantages to putting your own assets into a business? Can you deduct those as business expenses or anything like that? So the tax ramifications that we talk to our clients about, mm -hmm. usually, you know, there's a, free, a few different types. There's a disregarded entity, which is common for limited liability companies. So what that really means is that the business doesn't produce its own tax return. Instead, the money that's made or lost from the business flows through to the tax return of the owners. And when you have multiple owners, you're also splitting that based on the percentages that are outlined in your operating agreement, which could be different than your ownership percentages. There's a partnership tax status, which also is a pass-through entity. So if your tax is a partnership, there is an annual return that you file. But again, the income or losses are passed through to the partners. And then there, of course, is tax exempt for nonprofit organizations. But the two types of tax statuses that I think cause a lot of confusion are around S Corp and C Corp. <laughs> so sometimes I'll ask folks, you know, what kind of business entity are you? And they'll say, oh, I'm an S Corp <laughs> or I'm a C Corp. And those are really tax statuses. That's not a type of entity because a limited liability company could be taxed as an S Corp. I was, going to, I was going to ask if we could clarify what a, what an S corp is and a C corp is. For example, I was involved in a in a subchapter S corporation because yep. there were tax advantages to that. But can you define for us what an S corp and a C corp are and what the differences are? Absolutely. For corporations, they're different than LLCs or partnerships that could have that disregarded or pass through entity status. But instead, a corporation really has double taxation. So a corporation is taxed at the business level and also usually when the money is distributed to its shareholders. An S-Corp is a corporation whose income is taxed through the shareholders rather than through the corporation. So it actually stands for a small business election. That's what the S-Corp means. And then you have a C-Corp, which is the traditional way that corporations are taxed, where the income is taxed through the entity and through the shareholders when the money is distributed. 
to be a subchapter S, to have that subchapter S small business election with the Internal Revenue Service. There are a few qualifications and conditions in order to be able to have that tax status. You have to be a domestic corporation. So the business has to be based here in the United States. You can only have certain types of shareholders and there's a limit. So you can only have 100 shareholders or less. They have to be individuals. So if you want that S-Corp status, your business can't be owned by another corporation or any other type of business. And you also have to only have one class of stock. So when you're taxed as a subchapter S, the owner is then converted to a W-2 employee. They have to be paid a reasonable salary. You're not paying those self-employment taxes, but instead you're paying income tax. And it does impact some of your deductions. So you'll lose your deduction like the home office deduction uh, when we're talking about write-offs. What about mileage? Is that another one that would change or... I don't think you lose your mileage deduction, but I can look that up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there, so there are more stringent rules to be a, to have that subchapter S small business election, but there are also some benefits. Can you pay yourself? I mean, for example, I know some subchapter S corporation where the employee was taxed, but the subchapter S corporation paid the employee enough to offset that tax. Absolutely. So when you make the subchapter S election, the owner does have to be converted to a W-2 employee and paid a reasonable salary. Sometimes that's just what would, you know, businesses can determine what that is. And sometimes that's just enough to cover the tax obligations. When you are not a subchapter S corporation for a limited liability company, we just encourage and through the operating agreement, we also document this. But usually business owners are allowed to take distributions when it makes sense for the business. So we wouldn't encourage people to take money from the business if they had, you know, other expenses that needed to be covered. But when you own the business, you can really make your deductions when you feel appropriate. And I encourage people to put that on a schedule. You won't have a normal, air quotes there, a normal paycheck, but you can have a normal distribution schedule. So it really just depends on the income, I would say, of the business. Most of us envision when we're starting a small business that there were, we're going to be working at it and be a primary part of it. And you just talked about the S-Corp feature where you become an employee and withholding and everything is taken out of that. Are there scenarios where maybe you're limited liability and you have your operating agreement, but then do you also need to have an employment agreement if you're getting paid or should that all be laid out in your operating agreement? Great question. So in your operating agreement, we're often, we, we actually, through seed law, we don't put a figure in there about how much the distribution should be or any kind of required salary. And mostly that's because you don't want to breach your own agreement as a business owner. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think an employment agreement is a great idea, um, both if the owner is is an employee and when you decide to actually start building the team. But When we talk about building a team for business owners, we're encouraging them to get it all in writing from job descriptions to onboarding agreements to handbooks, and then also operations and safety manuals. And that takes a lot of time for business owners to do because really it's the transition from, okay, what am I thinking about my business in my head? And let me put it (laughs) on paper so that others can understand. It really helps to create that clear expectations for roles and feedback. Long story short, yes, I encourage people if they're working in their business as an employee, and if they start to bring other people in to always document those relationships. 
So you were talking about building your team. What are some of the ways that you can build your team and hire employees to help you in your efforts? Sure. Generally, when we're talking to our clients about building the team, first, we're talking to them about really just the policies. What are your goals of your HR department? Who are the authorities, both on the local, state, and federal level, that outline human resources or employee-related regulations? Being mindful of regulations through the Internal Revenue Service or the U.S. Department of Labor, and also the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Then you have to consider your strategy. Will you self-perform the work? Are you going to bring employees in? Or will you outsource your labor through consultants? So we really start talking to people about how to manage a proper interview because we know that there are protected classes and certain conversations that can't be had in an interview. So we're talking to our clients about that intentional interview and making sure to know what questions are appropriate and which are not. And for entrepreneurs, it's important to understand the laws behind, you know, the laws that might even impact or influence how you interview. Because I often see that not managed, you know, if people don't know what the laws are. I'm sorry if that wasn't very clear, but... (laughs) And that makes sense. You might ask a question in an interview that you really shouldn't be asking according to the law. But if you didn't know about it, you could be making that error. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the protected classes that we know exists is about religion. And I had a client several years ago who was bringing on their first team member and in the interview said, hey, let's take a moment of prayer to make sure this is a good fit. Well, you know, it's okay to take a moment of prayer perhaps outside of an interview, but in an interview that can, you know, if someone doesn't get the job, they may feel, hey, did I not get the job because I wasn't comfortable praying or because I did? And you don't want people to think that any of the categories that fall under protected classes are maybe the reason why someone didn't get the job. But there are companies, small and large, that can dictate uh, various things according to the owner of the company's personal philosophy or faith. Uh, how does that fit into forming a company and then operating it? Is that a, is that a consideration at all as far as the legal structure of forming a company? So what I would recommend for that is just that business owners and their job descriptions and their requirements for who would be a good fit in the job, just be mindful to make sure that everything that they're documenting that they want and that they need is just specifically related to the job. So you can have, you know, requirements in your job description, like must be able to lift 25 pounds without assistance or must be able to, you know, do basic math. Now, if that directly relates to what you'll be doing on the job, it's okay to put that in, but you want to be mindful that the tests that you might have don't violate any laws by intentionally or inadvertently discriminating against one of those protected classes. Also, not just looking at maybe who you employ, but a big U.S. Supreme Court decision and case in recent years that I think actually drew the attention of most people in the nation was the famed cake case where a baker chose not to provide a cake to a same-sex couple who was getting married and can't legally (laughs) describe what the decision was other than that if that's the prerogative of the baker that he can choose, he or she can choose to do that. Is that something that... If I'm starting a business and I have certain beliefs that maybe I should be worried about, you know, a conflict with potential customers or clients, or is that basically, I'm not asking this question very well, but what would be your advice? Or do you think that's something that 
new business owners would even run into? Is it is it kind of a rare scenario? Yeah, this is such an interesting topic because, you know, as business owners, our values are the things that we care about are reflected in our business. I mean, we can't help but really have that be a part of of the culture sometimes of our small business. What I encourage my clients to remember at all times is that their business, the reason why we create an entity is so that that business has a separate identity from its owners. <laughs> I see signs in some places that say no, what is it? No shirt, sure, no, no shoes, shoes, no, no service, service. <laughs> things like that. I, is, is that legal? I wouldn't say it's illegal, uh, but I don't know what the law is on that, Bob. Yeah. I would have to see because I'm wondering who even would create the law around that. <laughs> yeah. I suppose there might be a health issue in certain places if this is a restaurant or something, maybe that sure. might be good, but yeah. it, it's just, it's just sometimes the way things are said more than, more than anything else yeah. that gets people in a lot I of I want to say those signs were a lot more popular when I was younger than I, oh, I yeah. don't run yeah. into them yeah. as often yeah. today. <laughs> I well, see that. I mean, I still see them now at gas stations. Mm -hmm. And so it could be because of the health code. You're right, Bob, that, yeah. that there makes sense for mm -hmm. me. When you, when you do seminars, I assume you do seminars for, for people who are interested in forming their own business. Do you get into such things as, um, uh, what kind of federal standards people have to apply uh, to make sure they are, uh, apply comply with in terms of handicap access or uh, benefits for employees or things like that? Do you go through that pretty thoroughly with folks? So generally, just directly to answer your question, in our presentations, we mm -hmm. don't because it can be really kind of in the weeds depending on what kind of business you have and the amount of employees. So for instance, the Americans with Disabilities Act does require compliance from all companies. But if you have less than 15, there are certain things that you don't have to comply with. I know that you mentioned kind of going back to the advice that you gave that, you know, you're creating an entity because it, it's its own separate thing other than the owner. Um, are there other risks that small business owners should be guarding against or thinking about um, you know, that was a great piece of advice. I'd never thought of it that way before. You know, don't be married, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess, to your to your business. Um, but what other bits of advice do you tend to uh, share with your new entrepreneurs that walk through your doors? So I think just on that same note, what we share with people is that if you if you fail to plan, if you plan, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So it's not enough to consider you know, what kind of legal entity do you want to be? How do I want to document the relationships in, in, in my business? But business owners should also be considering, although we do select usually perpetual when we're creating an entity, when the Secretary of State asks, how long do we want this business to be in existence? The reality is that none of us will be able to run our businesses forever. Um, and so we're always encouraging our clients to consider uh, succession planning as well. And what does it mean to actually train management and team members to either continue the business or to plan to, you know, what is the exit plan? That's often what we're working with business owners about after they've established to say, okay, you're doing it now, but 50 years from now, what do you want your business to look like? And are we creating the systems in place that if you want to sell um, or if you want to just close down or if you want to transition it to your owner, you know, your team members, how will that happen and so we talk through that initial choice of entity, but we're also working with our clients for the growth, the scale, and also the, the graceful exit as well. Is the planning process, do you, would you say that it's continual or are there kind of segments of time? Like, is, is there a set amount of months or 
years even that you think someone should take to plan to start their business and the same with succession planning? Or is it something that you should just kind of start from the very beginning and continue to do? I think both. I think that you should be considering it early on in your business. And then I encourage our clients for all of their documents, including their succession planning documentation, to review it every two to three years. The laws change, your businesses may change, the services and the products that you offer may change. Hopefully the amount of revenues that you're making is also (laughs) making an upward trajectory as well. And so that impacts how the value of the business and what might happen, you know, on its dissolution, whether it's through a sale or a transfer. When somebody walks in the door of your office and says, I want to put together my own business, do you, do you probe them a little bit to find out what misconceptions they might have about actually forming a business and going into business? We do. And as you mentioned, Bob, we do a lot of continuing education through the seed law side. I am an entrepreneur first who happened to go to law school to help teach other entrepreneurs about the legal ramifications of business, because really every business decision that we make has a legal ramification, whether it's realized right then or not. And so we talk our clients, um, we try to spend a lot of our time really educating our clients on what it will actually mean to create a business. And as we mentioned before, an entrepreneur is a person who organizes, manages, and assumes the risk of creating an enterprise. And so the, the work that we do is an attempt to educate our clients about what that actually means and also help mitigate some of that risk by being mindful of the laws and really just documenting your business relationships. Somewhere, I think I saw a statistic about what percent of new small businesses don't make it to the second year or the third year or the fifth year. I don't want to discourage people from wanting to be entrepreneurs and trying to, trying to form, form their own business and live a dream, but what are the odds? You know, that's a, I don't know the stats, but I will say, you know, as a business owner myself, business requires a lot. (laughs) You know, the dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately and it's taxed and it's expensive. (laughs) So that's what we try to, you know, just, I think that entrepreneurship really, to be honest, is the great equalizer. It allows those who have a dream to really pursue it. I think it allows us to really express our human right of self-determination, to really create one's own path. So, yes, entrepreneurship is risky, but being an employee can be risky, too. I mean, many of us have been in positions where you get the two-week call or the business that you're working with might be closing or you might lose your job through a reorganization. So when you're starting a business, um, it's difficult, I think, because as an owner, you're wearing all 100 hats versus, you know, as an employee, you might be really good at the 10 hats. So I just think that being an entrepreneur is a really learning, it's a learning experience. It requires a lot of patience with self, but it also requires a team. And so I encourage all of our business owners to remember that they don't have to be their own professional service providers as well. We encourage people to find other folks that understand where they want to go um, and who complement their entrepreneurial style. They should, of course, have a lawyer who understands their business and knows where they want to go and can help them document. We also encourage them to find a banker, an accountant, an insurance agent, and a financial advisor who can also help mitigate some of those risks we were talking about so that business owners can focus on their craft. But all business owners have to really split that time between working on the business and working in the business. So for me, lawyering is working, you know, my direct lawyering is working in the business. And when I'm working on the business, we're working on our systems that actually help us be more efficient, 
Uh, we're researching. We're trying to make sure that we're building a solid business model so that we can help serve our clients long term. So there's a lot of things that, that business owners have to really balance and delegate and, and get organized when they're starting. And, and it can be really overwhelming. But I think that if you document your relationships and you have a clear plan for where you want to go, at least even a three-year plan, here's where I want to be in three years. What do I need to do today in order to get there through my business if I'm able to? So those are some of the considerations that we work with people through to help minimize those risks. Because, you know, every business that starts won't be around forever. But those that organize and really respect an entity as something separate and really try to build it up on its own, I think those are the ones that are most successful. Well, this has been really educational. And uh, I wish I would have known some of these things before I started my business, <laughs> which, which lasted three years. <laughs> but uh, but uh, three years wasn't bad. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a podcast service of the Missouri Bar. We're glad to have had Adrian Haynes, a small businesswoman and a lawyer who's been with us today to tell us about how to establish and run a small business, some things to anticipate and some things to watch out for. Adrian, thank you so much for being with us. It's been wonderful. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. If you're wanting more information on this topic, we invite you to visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find our business law resource guide. Well, we've been talking about today's laws and structures when it comes to starting your own business. It's important to look at how those laws flow from our constitutional rights. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more. When we think of the rights protected by the Constitution, we tend to focus on freedom of speech, religious freedom, or freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. These are undeniably important rights and deserving of all the attention they receive in textbooks and case law. A right that receives less attention is economic liberty. While there is no specific constitutional right to make money, Professor Erwin Chemerinsky cites numerous provisions in the Constitution that relate to economic activity. These include Article 1, Section 10 provides that no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. The Fifth Amendment states that nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments forbid the government from taking an individual's property without due process of law. And the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty has been interpreted to include freedom of contract, freedom to pursue a livelihood, and freedom to practice a trade or profession. Of course, some commentators contend that economics was at the heart of the creation of the Constitution. It was only when the economic interests of the most powerful people in the new country were threatened that the well-bred, the well-read, and the well-fed insisted upon the Constitutional Convention. Historian Charles Beard said the Constitution was all about economics, writing, the members of the Philadelphia Convention, which drafted the Constitution, were, with a few exceptions, immediately, directly, and personally interested in and derived economic advantages from the establishment of the new system. Beard concluded, the Constitution was essentially an economic document based upon recognizing the claim of property to a special and defensive position in the Constitution. 
One of the clearest statements of the place of economic interest in our constitutional constellation came from Justice Bradley in the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1872. Bradley wrote, the individual citizen as a necessity must be left free to adopt such calling, profession, or trade. Without this right, he cannot be a free man. This right to choose one's calling is an essential part of that liberty which it is the object of government to protect. And a calling, when chosen, is a man's property and right. Liberty and property are not protected where these rights are arbitrarily assailed. The high point of the court's protection of economic liberty came in the 1905 case of Lochner versus New York. The state of New York had enacted limits on the number of hours that could be worked in a bakery or confectionery business. Lochner, who operated a bakery, challenged the constitutionality of this law, claiming the law violated his liberty and the liberty of his employees to enter into contracts to work longer hours than allowed by law. The Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, agreed. Justice Peckham, writing for the majority, characterized the law imposing limits on working hours as an illegal interference with the rights of individuals, both employers and employees, to make contracts regarding labor upon such terms as they may think best. Justice Harlan wrote for the dissent, arguing that this was precisely the sort of action government should be able to take. He cited a text on diseases of workers that stated, the labor of workers is among the hardest and most laborious imaginable because it has to be performed under conditions injurious to the health of those engaged in it. Because of this, Justice Harlan contended, it is plain that this statute was enacted in order to protect the physical well-being of those who work in bakery and confectionery establishments. The view of the dissenters was that this is a classic example of the police power of the state. Lagner embodied the dilemma of ensuring economic liberty while empowering government to regulate in the name of safety. On one hand, we want to protect the right of individuals to operate their business as they see fit. On the other hand, we want the government to have the ability to protect the health and well-being of the employees who work in those businesses. One of the things that changed after Lochner was the onset of the Great Depression. The people, desperate for assistance, formed an expectation that government would take greater action on their behalf. The administration of Franklin Roosevelt imposed extensive regulation on business. The question was whether the Supreme Court would continue to use a Lochner-type approach and strike down the government regulation, or whether the different circumstances would produce a different judicial perspective on economic liberty. The answer came in 1937 in West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. This case concerned a law enacted by the state of Washington imposing a minimum wage requirement for women and minors. Elsie Parrish worked as a maid at West Coast Hotel. The hotel refused to pay her at the minimum wage set by the state. She brought suit to collect the difference between what she was paid 
and what she was owed under the minimum wage law. West Coast Hotel, relying on the precedent established in Lochner, argued that the amount paid to Elsie Parrish was purely a matter between Elsie Parrish and the hotel. It was none of the business of the state of Washington. The Supreme Court rejected the hotel's argument. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes wrote, the legislature of the state was clearly entitled to consider the situation of women in employment. The fact that they are in the class receiving the least pay, that their bargaining power is relatively weak, and that they are the ready victims of those who would take advantage of their necessitous circumstances. The Supreme Court, in a reversal of its approach in Lochner, ruled that the government interest in protecting the well-being of employees did in fact outweigh the right of companies to negotiate advantageous contracts and to conduct business with the greatest possible profit. In fact, Chief Justice Hughes cast business in the role of villain, writing, the community is not bound to provide what is in effect a subsidy for unconscionable employers. The community may direct its lawmaking power to correct the abuse, which springs from their selfish disregard of the public interest. In the decades since the Parrish case, the Supreme Court has not declared a governmental regulation unconstitutional as a violation of economic liberty. Fortunately for employers, the judiciary is not the only branch of government and business has a strong record of success in presenting its case to the legislative branch. In addition, economic liberties made something of a comeback in recent decisions on the issue of punitive damages. The history of constitutional law in our country demonstrates that few ideas are etched in stone and the potential for change is as real as the court's next docket. It is entirely within the realm of possibility that economic liberty could be revived by the members of a future Supreme Court, and the approach of Lochner could once again become guiding precedent in the law. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that impact our daily lives, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farrah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal Too? A regular look at our legal system and you.